This morning we we have the great privilege of uh, having uh, our brother David Woolen, uh, who is one of the elders at uh, Grace Emmanuel Reformed Baptist Church at uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. He also does serve as the chief executive officer of uh, the Reformation Heritage Books. Uh, it's a blessing to have you, brother. You may come and uh, bring God's word to us. Uh, Grace Emmanuel, uh, where he comes from, is the church where Ken Kome Kiambati is a member. Please come. So it's a blessing. Please bring God's word to us. I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're turning there, I want to thank you for your hospitality, for your welcome over these few days. It's been such a joy and a blessing and a real privilege to be with you. And of course, I bring the greetings of the church there in Michigan to you. They have been praying for the conference and praying for the ministry and praying for this church too. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What I'm going to do is read the first 22 verses to begin with. It's a natural and wonderful place to turn on Easter Sunday as the Apostle Paul here looks at the facts of Christ's resurrection. And our focus will be on just three words which are found in verse 3, and that's the title of the sermon this morning, of first importance of first importance. So let me read, first of all, the first 22 verses for you. Hear the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain." We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in, as in Adam all die, so also all in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, Paul goes on and he talks of the order of the resurrection. And then glancing down at verse 42, he tells us that the resurrection of the dead, the, the destiny of believers, is a change from a perishable body to an imperishable body, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power, from natural to spiritual. And I want to pick up then after that in verse 50 and read to the end of the chapter. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's pray. Great God and Father, we come to your most holy, life-giving word now. Lord, you have made promises and we grasp hold of them. Speak to us, we pray. Speak through this word and change us where we need to be changed. Lord, open our hearts to your truth. Lift up the honor and glory of your Son as he deserves. Show us Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in preparation for this morning's message, I opened the internet and I typed in the following words, the most important thing is, and then I clicked search. The results page was enlightening. I admit not very scientific. Mostly it came up with websites about money. Other sites talked about love and friends and purpose and freedom, peace, many other things. One quote kept coming up from an American actress that I don't think I've ever seen. But she said this, 
the most important thing is to enjoy your life, to be happy. It's all that matters. That's what she said. See, we live in a time when people's priorities have come to the surface a little bit more than usual. With the circumstances that we've lived through recently, your needs are naturally highlighted when you are pressed and pressured. What is most important? Well, in our verses this Easter Sunday morning, we have the inspired words of God through the Apostle Paul telling us what is of first importance. And I want to explore that with you because when you have the creator and sustainer of the universe telling you what is most important, it holds infinitely more value and weight than any other opinion, anywhere you can find it. And so please have the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians open in front of you. Look again at verses 3 through 5. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here, here it comes. This is what is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He then appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and it goes on. Different commentators break this up into different parts. One labels what Paul says as the four pillars of our faith. And you can see them in the text as you glance over it. Number one, he died. Number two, he was buried. Number three, he was raised. And number four, he appeared. And this passage, of course, is all about the resurrection. We saw that as we read it. But this is the point. The life... The cross, the death, the empty tomb, the resurrected Christ, these things cannot be separated. They are all seamlessly connected as the most important event in all of time, space, and history. John Calvin said this, The cross of Christ only triumphs in the breast of believers over the devil and the flesh, sin and sinners, when their eyes are directed to the power of his resurrection. These things are tied together. Paul here is summarizing the gospel before in depth looking at the resurrection. You see what he says here. He's received this message and he's passing it on as we need to do in our generation. That's been the message of our conference over the past few days. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul visited Corinth and helped establish that church. And after he left, he wrote to them for a variety of reasons. And two of the letters he wrote are inspired by the Holy Spirit, part of our Bible, and therefore passed on to us as infallible, perfect Scripture. This first letter has included a lot of teaching that we are intimately familiar with. But in chapter 15, where we started, he begins an entirely new subject. He now opens up the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in those first 11 verses. The facts, the truth. He's answering objections. 
And then from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, he goes on to talk about the significance of the resurrection. The effects, the impacts, the results. Now, this morning I want us to look at the very basics. Paul's overarching message. And it's this, the centrality, the non-negotiable, most important facts of the gospel. The beginning of verse 3 says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. You see the chain here. Paul is about to tell us something in the very top priority of importance. And key here is to understand that he's delivering these truths. Spurgeon said this, Charles Spurgeon from London, Notice that the preacher does not make the gospel. If he makes it, it is not worth your having. He says, originality in preaching, if it be originality in the statement of doctrine, is falsehood. And he talks to himself and other pastors and he says, we are not makers and inventors. We are repeaters. We tell the message we have received. You see what Paul is doing here. He's, he's not making this up. He's not changing it. He's not tweaking it. Paul and every other minister of the gospel is a delivery boy. That's it. He's received something authoritative, specifically truth from God. Imagine it as a package, multiple parts, and, and he's not opened it and, and fiddled with it. He's not taken something out of the box. He's not put anything in the box. He's received the box. He's taken care of it. And he's faithfully passed it on in its original condition to these Corinthian believers. And then on to their offspring. And then on to other generations. And we are in that line today. So now he opens this box of truth that he hasn't messed with. And he shows us what God says. And it falls into the critical category of first importance. Please consider our first of three points this morning. And the first point is this. Death anticipated. Death anticipated. Look at verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he's speaking to a group of believers the fact that jesus would die that he would hang on a roman cross was not a surprise it was part of a perfect plan which we are still living in the midst of take just one step back to the time immediately prior to the death of Jesus. He's telling his disciples that this is about to happen. You just take another small step back into his ministry, those three years, and we read many times and in many ways that Jesus is fully aware of his mission, fully aware of what it necessitates as he heads to the cross, as he heads to Jerusalem for this purpose. Another step back into his childhood, where we see the arrows pointing in this direction to the cross. 
He has come to save. Go another step back into the Old Testament. Into the prophets, we find exactly the same. Long before Jesus walked the earth, these men, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were telling us in great and specific detail about this Savior and what he was coming to do, what he would endure. Another step back, all the way back to Genesis, where we have that first hint to humanity after the fall, that one is coming to put right what had been destroyed. But it doesn't even stop there. You see, the suffering and shame that Jesus endured, the moment that Jesus took his final breath, that moment that his heart stopped, the moment that his impulses in his brain ceased, that moment, if I can say it this way, that moment has always been planned. In eternity past, holy God in three persons, the Trinity knew exactly what was going to happen that first Easter. There has never been a moment when this event was not of first importance. Matthew Henry says this, Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are thy healing. His agonies thy repose. His conflicts thy conquests. His groans thy songs. His pains thine ease. His shame thy glory. His death thy life. His sufferings thy salvation. This is personal. This isn't merely an interesting historical event. But there is a whole period of history when this event is being anticipated. They're looking forwards to it. Before it actually happened at a specific moment on a specific piece of ground in Israel, a few square miles perhaps, where all of this took place in absolute perfection. Do you see what I'm saying? Look at the three verses, 3 through 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Twice it says the critical and authoritative words that all of this is according to the Scriptures. I understand that it could be translated in conformity to the Scriptures. It brings to mind... Uh, Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road, after it happened. And this is Jesus speaking. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Looking backwards at the prophets in the Old Testament. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into, into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right at the beginning of the Bible, all the way through, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesse Ryle, the old bishop of Liverpool in his book, The Cross, again pointing to all of this being first importance, says all Christ's sufferings on the cross were foreordained. They did not come on him by chance or accident. They were all planned, counseled, and determined from all eternity. He says the cross 
was foreseen in all the provisions of the everlasting Trinity for the salvation of sinners. In the purposes of God, the cross was set up from everlasting. Not one throb of pain did Jesus feel. Not one precious drop of blood did Jesus shed which had not been appointed long ago. Infinite wisdom planned that redemption should be by the cross. Infinite wisdom brought Jesus to the cross in due time. He was crucified by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Paul, back in 1 Corinthians, is telling us, and the believers then, that this event, this death, was infallibly and immutably set on the calendar of heaven with no chance of cancellation for any reason. Jesus came to die on a Roman cross to reverse the effects of the fall to save a people, and to save specifically you if you are a believer. So we've seen death anticipated. That was our first point. Now secondly, death authenticated. Well, now we pick up again in the second half of verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried. He was buried. He's dead and buried. It's not just the fact that the death of Christ was anticipated or predicted. It actually happened. It, it had to happen. Jesse Ryle again. If Christ had not gone to the cross and suffered in our stead, the just for the unjust, there would not have been a spark of hope for us. There would have been a mighty gulf between ourselves and God, which no man ever could have passed. But consider with me the, all the prophecies that point to the necessity of the death being authentic. The death actually happening. Listen, we can, we can look at so many failed prophecies in our world over many generations. I can predict something right now, okay? I might get it right. In fact, I, I might have a streak and get a few things right in a row. Or I might get it wrong because I'm fallible. Unlike God, who is infallible and has never once got anything wrong. An objection might be, well, predicting the death and burial of someone is not all that impressive, really. Because the vast majority of people will die and be buried. But of course, the, the Old Testament includes many prophecies about his birth and his whole, whole life, not just his death and resurrection. And if you want to look into that, there are plenty of places to look in Scripture. I would point you to Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, Hosea 6, Zechariah 11, Zechariah 12, Psalm 16, Psalm 41. Look at the detail of what is predicted about these events. See, one of the important points is that many, many of these prophecies about death were very specific and beyond the control of a mere human. But the point was that the death was authenticated. It's not questioned in Scripture. You see, it's very important 
to establish that Jesus actually died in anticipation of our next point regarding the resurrection. And this is the the shortest point, but it's essential. He was dead. He was buried. And that allows us to look backwards at our first point and forwards to our third point. Backwards. He was really dead. That was anticipated. That's what they said would happen. It's authenticated. And then we can look forwards. And therefore, he really rose from the dead. Commentator Jeffrey Wilson says, that Christ was buried attests both to the completeness of his death and the reality of his resurrection. There are excellent books out there, even evangelistic resources that that critically examine all the evidence for this. We read a lot of it in Scripture. And one line of attack for the doubter is to question whether Jesus actually and in reality died. If he never died, there was never a resurrection. Often the religion of Islam suggests some kind of swoon theory where Jesus almost died and in the cold of the tomb he revived. My friends were left in no doubt in Scripture that Jesus was 100% dead. We could examine the expertise of the Roman guards, the reaction of the disciples, the physical evidence of the cross. You could do a series of Sunday school lessons on the evidence. And if that's a problem for you, your elders can help you. There are those out there who want to find explanations for the miraculous and divine. They must find evidence against it. You see, then they can dismiss it. You can see attempted explanations for creation, or the plagues of Egypt, or for the miracles of Christ, and so on. People who do not believe have to find something. They need to be able to dismiss the evidence. Their hearts are darkened. But we have testimonies of those who once did not believe, who through the grace of God and His transforming power now live for Christ. The evidence is here. But you see, if we look at the entirety of Scripture, there's no room for doubt. It's a package deal. And believing in an all-powerful and an all-knowing and an ever-present God means that when we are presented with the account of Christ's death and resurrection, our answer is, well, yes, of course, God can do anything. We might not be able to fathom the depths of this, but God can die and rise again. He's the giver of life. We also need to understand that this was no ordinary death. The prophecies tell us that Jesus is achieving something remarkable when he dies. Verse 3 in our passage does too. It tells you not not just that he died for sin, but our sin. Again, it's personalized. Believer, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died specifically for and paid the price of your sin. And therefore, the truth of this claim is of first importance to you. And here's a critical point. Jesus did not just die or merely die like everybody else. He died for sin. He specifically died for and paid the price of the sin of all those who will believe. His people, his elect. 
He was and is a substitute, a representative. If you believe He died in my place, He died in your place. So you don't have to die and pay the price for your own sin. Once it's paid for by Christ through His death, then it's dealt with forever. This atonement is key to the Gospel as a substitute taking the punishment instead of you. This is of first importance. If his death was not authenticated, if his death did not really happen, he has not died for sin. James Montgomery Boyce speaks of the death of Christ and says, the cross stands as the focal point of the Christian faith. Without the cross, the Bible is an enigma and the gospel of of salvation is an empty hope. When Jesus was placed in that tomb as a corpse, evil thought it had triumphed. We've won. But the devil and all his cohorts could not be more wrong. There's a famous sermon from the deep south in America. This big, huge preacher in the pulpit, and he keeps shouting, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And he's right. We don't stop at Good Friday. Christ is resurrected from the tomb, and that's where our hope is. So we've seen, firstly, death anticipated. Secondly, death authenticated. He was dead and buried for your sin. And now thirdly, death annihilated. Death annihilated. Verse 26, some uh, have abolished or destroyed. Death died. And this is where, so to speak, we, we punch the air in delight. The tomb is empty. That first Easter, praise God. And it remains empty. Death has no more dominion. And this resurrection is the central event in history. We celebrate it. We praise God for it. It's the climax. Jesus is vindicated. This is the greatest miracle. This is what it says in verse (coughs) 4. And that He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, Paul is telling the Corinthians that this lines up exactly with prophecy. According to the Scriptures. Emphasis through repetition. Never miss that. The resurrection of Jesus proves it validates everything. It authenticates His teaching, His his ministry. Matthew 16, verses 1-4. through The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. They asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. Come on, prove it, Jesus. Prove it. But He replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and he went away. Now, We know what this is talking about. We're told with Jonah three days in the belly of the fish. Jesus is pointing to his death and his burial for that same amount of time. And then 
the resurrection. The ultimate sign is what Jesus is saying. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, for example, chapter 8, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, one of his names, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. His resurrection authenticates. It proves his teaching. He predicts this over and over. The very next chapter, Mark 9, 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, really dead, he will rise three days later. Mark 10, next chapter. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. He's not hiding this, is he? He knows what will happen. We could go more into the evidence, but that's not really what we're looking at this morning, but rather the importance of this. Paul does look at that in some of the verses. We're not ignoring that or dismissing that. It's the most important event in history. Every aspect of our faith rests on the empty tomb, rests on the fact of that resurrection day. Take it out and the whole Bible crumbles to the ground. Can't be overemphasized. Without this truth, we have nothing. Nothing at all. Most to be pitied. Our faith is useless. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. But we have eyewitnesses. We, we have consistent and corroborating testimonial evidence supporting this. It's verified. It's supported. It's trustworthy. And over the centuries, some have tried to redefine what happened. Play it down. Debunk it. Explain it away. My friend, Jesus was literally and actually dead. Jesus literally and actually rose from the dead. We can go elsewhere in Scripture and find witnesses testifying to its authenticity. There's no body. The, the authorities fabricated a, a laughable story to cover it up. Hundreds and hundreds of people saw the risen Christ after it happened. In Scripture, we read that people are told, if you don't believe me, you can go and see somebody and talk to them who saw Him risen. The disciples and many followers throughout church history were willing to suffer persecution and even death on the basis that Jesus Christ rose from the dead their only hope and it's our only hope jesse ryle said the resurrection it is the seal and headstone of the great work of redemption which he came to do it is the crowning proof that he has paid the debt which he undertook to pay on our behalf he has won the battle which he fought to deliver us from hell and is accepted as our surety, as our substitute by our Father in heaven. Had he never come forth from the prison of the grave, how could we ever have been sure that our ransom had been fully paid? 
had he never risen from his conflict with the last enemy, how could we have felt confident that he had overcome death and him that had the power of death, that is the devil? But thanks be unto God, we are not left in any doubt. But again, this was part of this, this perfect tapestry, this perfect plan. This resurrection wasn't random, wasn't unexpected, but perfectly predicted in Scripture, proving the validity of Scripture. Acts 17.2 Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Just look at the emphasis of those writers in the New Testament, of the New Testament. Look at Paul later in Athens, in Acts 17, verse 18. He's teaching that Jesus about Jesus and the resurrection. Or on Mars Hill, a few verses later, God is now declaring to, to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Verse 11 in our chapter says that this resurrection message is consistent with the message of all the apostles. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul's emphasis in his preaching is the same as the other apostles. There's no doubt that this is of first importance. Is it to you? Is it of first importance to you? Or am I just talking about some abstract historical event right now? Or are you actually personally engaged here? When he died and rose again, was he doing that for you? So there's no doubt that the resurrection happened. But what about the applications of these truths? There's so many personal benefits of the resurrection. Many of them we've read already today. But think about the the Heidelberg Catechism. This is a Dutch catechism. And they split it into 52 days to cover uh, much theology. And on Lord's Day 17, they ask this question. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? Talking of believers. And the answer is this. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. That's a great summary. We just read over and over in 1 Corinthians 15 that our Hope for eternity rests on this. And the resurrection gives us the certainty and the assurance and the confidence that we need. You have that eternal life now, that resurrected new life, as the Heidelberg Catechism put it. But imagine, just for a second, 
What if Jesus is still in the tomb? If he's still there, if it never happened, you're not forgiven. Your life is worthless and pointless. There's no hope. The Bible is false. It's full of liars. Emptiness. Life with no reason. And that's what the atheists argue for. It's meaningless. It's futility. Preaching is a waste of time. But maybe we're all just evolutionary descendants of monkeys and we need to face reality. Even if we don't like it. You know that some people think that Christianity is a crutch for the weak to help them get through life. What if they're right? What if this life is meaningless and this is the best we get? Without the true gospel, we're serving a false God and believing a false religion. John MacArthur said this, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. It is so foundational to Christianity that no one who denies it can be a true Christian. A person who believes in a Christ who was not raised believes in a powerless Christ, a dead Christ. Let me read to you two quotations from Pastor Kevin DeYoung. Firstly, he says, Without the resurrection, nothing has been conquered. Not sin, not death, not the devil. But listen now. Jesus' resurrection from the dead testifies not only that Jesus is the Son of God, but that the offering of life was an acceptable sacrifice to God. If Jesus had not been raised, it would be an indication to us that the work of salvation had not yet been accomplished. Conversely, His being raised indicates the satisfaction of divine justice. The punishment is over. The merit of Christ has proven worthy. The debt has been paid. Death has been vanquished. Sin has been atoned for. You see how critical this is? Elsewhere, he says, the resurrection means that the death of Jesus was enough. Enough to atone for sin. Enough to reconcile us to God. Enough to present us holy in God's presence. Christ won. Sin, death, and the devil lost. That's the good news of the empty tomb. The resurrection means that Christ proved himself righteous to the Father so that through faith we can now share in his righteousness. This could not be more personal or relevant. Sinclair Ferguson says, we are adopted into God's family through the resurrection of Christ from the dead in which he paid all our obligations to sin, the law and the devil in whose family we once lived. Our old, st- st- our old status lies in his tomb. Our new status is ours through his resurrection. You see, death is conquered by Christ. It dispels any doubt over the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. And it shows us that our eternal life is certain. Confirms his identity. Romans 1.4 Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. 
according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the saviour of the world. It's irrefutable. It shows that the sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement was accepted by the Father. If he rose, then death is annihilated. If he rose, then death is abolished. If he rose, our sins are gone. If he rose, it should affect how we live. But my friends, there is no if here. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because the tomb is empty, I am destined for heaven. Because he died and rose for me, I want to live and serve and please my Lord and Savior. Similarly, thinking about that future hope, one writer said, why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ important? It proves who Jesus is. It demonstrates that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. It shows that God has the power to raise us from the dead. It guarantees that the bodies of those who believe in Christ will not remain dead, but will be resurrected unto eternal life. We don't have to doubt, have any doubt about anything Jesus says in all of his teaching. He predicted this. He is the Son of God, and He told us what will happen in the future. And therefore, we can know with certainty that it will happen. Romans 6 verse 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. You see, because of this, we are dead to sin. We have a new master. We're no longer slaves to sin. And therefore, back in our own passage, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory. He wasn't defeated at the cross. I've heard it said that even when he was on the cross, he was still on his throne. He's a conqueror. And believer, you are tied to him. You have union with Christ in his resurrection. And because of the fact of and certainty of the resurrection, you will be raised. He's the first fruits, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. He's the prototype. Our resurrection is linked to his. Philippians 3.20 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ will, not might, not maybe, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Oh, there's more to come. And the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And in this intervening time, he's at the right hand of God. He's alive. He's interceding for us. Romans 8.34, 
Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's the object of our faith. He is a living Savior, mediating for us. Hebrews 7.25, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's alive. We follow, we serve a risen Savior. Death is dead. Eternal life is ours. So we've seen death anticipated, death authenticated, and we saw death annihilated. Let's round up our thoughts. John MacArthur said, the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns, and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. The Bible, the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection, they come as a package deal of first importance. We live in a world of exaggeration, a world of embellishment, but this is one subject matter, one event that is impossible to overstate. You know the Apostle Paul at the very end of this chapter applies these truths to today. Resting on the truth of the resurrection in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. These are practical truths that should impact you every day in all that you do. Elsewhere, Paul writes to the Colossians and applies it, this resurrection practically, Colossians 3.1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I heard a song on the radio not long ago. Don't know by who. I don't really take much notice of these things, but... The line that they kept repeating was, live like you are dying. Live like you are dying. And I thought, yeah, we can, we can apply that to the Christian life. There's an urgency there. And once again, it brings priorities to the surface. But you see, it doesn't go far enough for the believer. Because we also need to live like you are living forever. Live like you are living forever. Live in the light of eternity. Quite rightly, Paul is concerned of first importance with the authentic full gospel, the gospel that has the power to save for all eternity. Oh, my friends, this is the heart of the matter. This is the crowning proof of Christianity. This is the absolute truth, the central truth. This is the most important doctrine in the whole of the Bible, the focal point of our faith, Jesus Christ is alive. 
Death is defeated. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus represents us in his death and in his resurrection. We die with him. We live with him. We are tied to him. This is the inseparable union with Christ. And as a believer, this is now the present reality of your life with the sure promise for the future. Such a rich truth during uncertain times. We must not leave this up in the theological sphere. We see the fear of death all around us. In the daily statistics, this is on people's minds right now. Maybe it's on your mind. Here's the truth that you need. Here's the truth that the world needs. We are safe in Christ and only in Christ. Revelation 1.17, John speaking about this same Christ Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks, and I ask, do you believe this? Do you believe in this Savior? Have you come to the foot of his cross with your sins? Have you repented, having seen what he went through to pay for sin? Are you rejoicing over the empty tomb this morning? Or terrified like those guards? Or trying to explain it away like many others have over the centuries since that first Easter? The women met the risen Christ. The disciples met him. Hundreds of others met him. Paul met him on the road to Damascus. And you can meet the risen Jesus Christ today. Will you bow the knee? Romans 10.9 That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Each of us will meet the risen Jesus Christ one day. Some are anticipating it with joy. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Others, we're told, will hide in the rocks. When the sky cracks open and Jesus in all his majesty and glory appears, which group are you in? The gospel, the life, the death. The resurrection, his intercession for us now, and his future coming again is of first importance to the unbeliever too.
you need to call out to God for salvation. But these events, some that have happened in the past, one that's happening right now, the intercession, and one still to come, are of first importance to believers too. They give us an immovable confidence, an immutable hope, the fuel to persevere with God's help in this fallen world. And like Paul, I encourage you to consistently wrestle with and study and meditate and apply these truths every single day. In a time of uncertainty, be united to and with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. My friends, there is nothing more important than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the death and resurrection of your Son. Increase our faith. Take away our unbelief. Strengthen us as we persevere in this fallen world. And God, we pray that you would save sinners even this day, that they would trust in you, that they would testify to knowing you as their Lord and Savior, that they would love you and follow you for the rest of their lives, that they would be tied to you in all that you have done for us. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified by saving sinners today. We thank you once again for the empty tomb. We praise you and we thank you for the hope that you have given to many of us already. Strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.